This podcast is brought to you by Nesta, the UK's Innovation Foundation, and was recorded at Futurefest, our weekend festival of ideas. Business models, bonuses, and the bankers. This is the Futurefest podcast. I'm Emily Elias, and we're asking, what's the future of the economy? episode, economist Barry Eichengreen outlines how to avoid another economic crash. The regulators talk about the bloodhounds and the greyhounds. The bloodhounds are on the trail of people who are trying to evade these regulations, and the greyhounds run very fast. Writer and consultant Dave Boyle has an issue with Uber, and Guardian columnist Owen Jones ponders whether we'll see fairness in the future banking system. For me, it's about spreading democracy everywhere, the workplace, politics, the economy. But let's start with something that's become fairly familiar with most of us. If you've taken an Uber, if you have booked a room on Airbnb, or used your mobile to find a set of helping hands on TaskRabbit, I hate to break it to you, but you've participated in the shared economy. Since 2008, venture capitalists have been investing money in these enterprises, but Dave Boyle, the director of the Community Shares Company, isn't so keen on this brand of shared economic revolution versus a more cooperative model. And during a debate over the future of our economy at FutureFest, he laid out his argument. Obviously, there are positives with the sharing economy. This debate often gets characterized, I think, as a technophiles versus Luddites, the holders back of the irresistible power of technological innovation versus some people who are a bit unhappy that their job just got innovated out of existence. If you desire a more freelance and flexible lifestyle, these kinds of services are superb. They give you the ability to actually choose your life-work balance, to actually live the kind of lives you'd like to live. But what if you don't desire flexibility? What if you desire a bit of security? What if you desire a bit of certainty over your income and your future? And I think this is one of the big issues for me, that the tech economy and the sharing economy and the language which goes with it is infused with the Californian ideology. It's a neoliberal solution for neoliberal problems in neoliberal times. The cooperative movement, by contrast, was always built on on a fundamental understanding of political economy. It started by making sure people in Rochdale could have bread which wasn't adulterated and wasn't full of weevils. But at its heart were a bunch of chartists who'd been trying to achieve political change and had been refused the opportunity to do so, so they started to use economic models to do so. So it starts with a shop, but it's noticeable that their fifth goal, after running a shop, running a factory, building houses, was beautiful. It was like a student transitional demand. It was uh, to reorganize the affairs of the human race. Um, This was a pretty grand vision. But I think a lot of things which are happening in this space, which are using this language of collaboration, are ignorant of this political economy and are ignorant of the, of the issues. So my take on this is, if you think, as I do, the biggest challenge facing our times is post-Piketty, the gross inequality in our society, how do these services aid the closing of that gap? And I'd say at the moment, the evidence is pretty thin that it's doing anything positive, and it's doing quite a lot of negative. That might be willful, it might be ignorant of those consequences, but it isn't having those kind of consequences. So we've got, on the first level, on a linguistic level, this isn't sharing. 
it's selling at a micro level to some extent. If I go and do an errand for a friend, I'm sharing my time. If I say, give us a fiver for that, I've not shared my time, I've sold it. So I think we need to be clear about the language. There's a, sharing is much nicer than selling because our values fundamentally, uh, you know, we don't have to get old George Bataille on this in terms of sacred and the profane, but, but there is something here about, um, about a, a misnomer. It is also seems to be very precarious to me. We've got the apocryphal, but they tell a deeper truth, I think, that you know, the Uber drivers who are told, jump red lights because we'll give you a bad rating because you're the one who's going to have the ticket from the police if you do it. So uh, you know, then we've got the boss being an algorithm. When the boss is an algorithm, the boss doesn't care that your kids are sick. So you know, get out there and work, or else you won't. The boss can't be organised against. The algorithm is pretty unflinching. It feels to me to take us back to a kind of early industrial revolution of a deeply uncaring labour relationship because it's not a human being nasty to you, it's just a computer programme telling you where you need to be and get there and if you don't, well, there's another few saps who will take your place and that I think is half the problem here that it's all very well sharing scarce resources, sorry, surplus resources like jackhammers, black and decker drills, cars, spare rooms but there's a scarce resource in our society today, and that's wealth and security and well-being. If you do have this unending stream of people in precarious and, and difficult to earn the kind of money they need to pay their basic costs, of course there's always someone coming up behind this person to take your place. It's a deeply insecure way to run an economy. I think there's another issue as well that these intermediaries are being created by venture capitalists, who the last time I checked didn't necessarily do everything they did with the well-being of the human race in mind. That's not to say some of them are not nice people, but it's not about whether you look in the mirror and say, I'm a good person. It's whether the effects of your capitalist production are actually doing good things which make a difference. It could be different. Every single one of these enterprises could be a poster child for a new cooperative revolution because it takes our effort, our capital, our cars, our houses, all of our things, our talent, our relationships with other human beings, and it monetizes them. And you could have this in a perfectly brilliant cooperative dividend-style ability to match how much effort have you put in, how much value has been transferred because of your efforts, and can you receive an equitable share of that value? The cooperative dividend was just a way of re returning to you the value which had been surplus generated by the collective endeavours. You could have brilliant fine-grained dividend payment systems, but it's not there. And why is that? Well, one of the answers is that the cooperative movement has unfortunately missed the entire boat when it comes to technology, um, as anybody who's tried to use the co-op bank's online service will tell you. Um, it's just not been at the races, and I think there is a real debate to be had about whether it's worth continuing to run these cooperative enterprises, which are essentially working to 19th and 20th century needs. So there's a problem here. It could be cooperative, it could be brilliantly cooperative and equitably cooperative, but I really struggle, apart from a grand gesture from the existing cooperative sector to basically throw itself on its sword in service to the 21st century way of doing it, I'm struggling to see how we get there. Talking about the economy has this haze of doom, gloom, and confusion. But columnist and author Owen Jones sees the banking scandals and this constant stock market roulette as an opportunity for hope and change. I caught up with Owen at FutureFest and asked him what it would take to see change in the banking system. The defenders of all unjust status quo's try to make people believe that injustice is like the weather, they can complain about it raining, but there's nothing they can do about it, it's just the way the world is. But I don't think that's true. I mean, the, the problem we, you know, we have is that resignation 
um, is a key means of maintaining a status quo. People might not be happy with it, but they feel there's no other option. And as well as that, they, their anger is directed at their neighbours. So instead of the powerful, it's immigrants, unemployed people, public sector workers, anyone but those with power. That you know, you should, if you're a low-paid worker, you should be not angry at your boss. You should envy the benefit claimant living in a mansion made out of, you know, a luxury mansion made out of widescreen television sets or whatever. Um, you, you know, you've been mugged, but you shouldn't be out, out angry at the fact you've been mugged. You should be angry at the fact you're less deserving neighbours not being mugged quite as much as you have. Um, so I think we need to smash that resignation and got to give people a sense of hope that collectively they can organise and change things. And in the aftermath of the financial crash, obviously a crisis caused by those at the top, those with power, I think there is an appetite for that. I think there's a sense that it's unjust, that this concentration of wealth and power is bad. People just feel resigned to it and that, that's what has to, be, um, that has to be overcome. But there's a responsibility for people like me who, who do want change to actually try and offer coherent alternatives that resonate with people, that give people hope because otherwise the status quo will just trundle along. Big question, we are at Future Fest. When you close your eyes, what do you envision the future looking like? Well I'm a hopeful man, a man um, of, I'm full of optimism and I believe that injustice is temporary and transient and can be overcome with sufficient determination, courage and hope. So I believe we will build a society that's not run as a racket for the mean and the greedy at the top, but a society running the interests of working people, where we have not just political democracy, but democracy in the economy, where we have democratic public ownership of utilities and services, uh, where, um, where everybody in work has a living wage they can live on, where um, we have a radical housing programme where we create the houses of the future, which are you know, all insulated and whatever, but of, of the best possible quality. You know. The expression of the labour, there's a song of the labour movement, we, we don't just want bread, we want roses. And that means not just satisfying people's basic needs, housing and jobs and so on, but also spreading, you know, things which might be considered luxuries to the whole of the population uh, as well. But for me, it's about spreading democracy everywhere, the workplace, politics, the economy, and redistributing wealth and power. And I think we will create that society and we will create a society free of housing crisis, full of, free of poverty, full of free of insecurity in the workplace, but it has to be fought for, but we will get there eventually. And no flying cars in your future? I would love a flying car, but the problem is, um, I remember, like, it's 2015 now, and that sounds really futuristic, and when I was like 12, I thought, oh, 2015, there'd be flying cars everywhere, but there are no flying cars, are there? Nowhere. I've tried looking, and we don't have those flying scooters either. And, you know, according to Back to the Future, 2015, there should be flying scooters by now. So, you know, yeah, I'd love flying cars, but I've just been disappointed too many times. If you want more Owen Jones, you can find him writing for The Guardian or, better yet, pick up his new book, The Establishment, which is out now wherever you buy your books. It just kind of feels like we're still in this economic hangover from 2008. And while some people saw it coming, most of us were caught by surprise. So in the future, is there a way to predict the next crash or even prevent it? Well, Barry Eichengreen, a professor of economics and political science at University of California, Berkeley, has a few ideas. Finance is too important to leave to the financiers. There's no question, centuries of history, not to mention our own very recent experience, remind us that there will be more crises or not. It's the nature of the financial system that it's complex, nonlinear, inhabited by emotional humans. 
and reacts to events in ways that neither the insiders nor the outsiders are able to predict. I don't think there is any one simple solution to the um, kind of financial problems that we experienced in 2007, 2008, or in 1929, 1931. I don't think uh, sovereign money will solve the problem of financial instability because I think if you um, whack the banking system, uh, it, the problem will pop up somewhere else in the shadow banking system and the non-bank financial system. I don't know if you play whack-a-mole in the UK. Uh, I'm sure you know what I mean. I don't think that a sharp separation between uh, public utility banking, banks that only make hyper-safe investments where we can put our hard-earned funds, and investment banks that then undertake riskier investments is really viable because the regulators talk about the bloodhounds and the greyhounds. Uh, the bloodhounds are on the trail of people who are trying to evade these regulations, and the greyhounds run very fast. Crisis is a terrible thing to waste, and I think the nature of the recent crisis is why we didn't get more far-reaching reform. In the United States in 1933, we did get the Glass-Steagall Act and a very sharp separation between public utility banking and risky banking. We got the creation of deposit insurance for the first time. We got the creation of a Securities and Exchange Commission to oversee the operation of stock and bond markets and put paid to the fiction of market self-regulation for the first time. And the reason we got those things was because the U.S. banking and financial system collapsed completely. And that's a fate that we fortunately managed to avert this time. So I think the irony this time is that success was the mother of failure. That because we succeeded in averting the, the worst, we failed to do more in terms of the kind of far-reaching fundamental financial reform that all right-minded people agree we need. That's the glass half-empty story. The glass half-full story is that it's not over. Regulators continue to issue rules. The parliament in the UK continues to pass supplementary legislation, strengthening potentially the regulation of the financial system against the backdrop of continuing financial scandals. So the good news about the scandals is that they're keeping the case for financial reform alive. To end on a positive note, what would I like to see? I, would, I, I don't think that we can break up banks that are too big to fail, but I think we can make them too safe to fail by force-feeding them a whole lot more capital, requiring their owners and shareholders to commit more of their own funds to these institutions. I think the derivatives problem that was at the center of the last crisis is still out there. These fancy securities need to be forced onto electronic exchanges where they can be cleared in real time and the fact that they're outstanding doesn't threaten innocent bystanders or counterparties. And when people tell me a security is too exotic to be forced onto an exchange, I think that's a good, a good argument for why it shouldn't exist. And third and finally, I think we need to disconnect commercial credit rating agencies from the regulatory process. What we know about the rating agencies are, are they're not the brightest bulbs on the block. They react 
after the fact to events rather than before, and they're subject to a fundamental conflict of interest. They advise securitizers about how to arrange an issue, and then they give it a AAA rating. If that's not a conflict of interest, I don't know what is. And that is it for this episode of the Future Fest podcast. This podcast featured music by Cosmo Sheldrake and Broke for Free. Future Fest is brought to you by Nesta, the independent innovation charity with a mission to help people and organizations bring great ideas to life. To join the conversation, go to the website nesta.org.uk, where you will find a fine selection of videos about Future Fest and even more. And if you like this podcast, could you do me a favor? Go into the iTunes store and give it a rating. A few stars or a couple words about how much you love it could help other people find this podcast. We'll be back next time as we look at the music industry and how we experience music. But until then, I'm Emily Elias. Goodbye.